We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. In the middle of the pandemic, I was invited by my friends at the B-Side podcast, Connor O'Donnell and Dan Mecca, to play with them as part of Team The Film Stage versus Team Letterboxd on a cinephile game night. I had so much fun playing that game and making new friends, including our guests that night, that I couldn't wait to start throwing my own virtual game nights with a close group of crime writer and film writer pals. It's become a near monthly thing that we've done since the summer of 2021. And while some nights we just wind up telling stories and catching up, the cinephile card game has been a mainstay and a source of so much fun that we wound up picking up the expansion packs to bring in new actors to shake things up. It is both a pleasure and an honor to bring the creator of the game, Corey Everett, onto the podcast today. In addition to talking about that wonderful game, Corey is joining us to inform us about his new cinephile books for kids, my first film noir, my first French new wave, and my first giallo horror, as well as A is for auteur. Additionally, a film writer with bylines at IndieWire and a contestant on the short-lived IFC series Ultimate Film Fanatic, Corey lives in Los Angeles with his wife and two sons. Corey, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing and how's 2023 treating you so far? (laughs) Uh, Jen, it's great to see you Um, and it's treating me okay. I'm happy to be here and happy we could do this. And as you kind of mentioned, um, one of the silver linings of being trapped inside for over a year really was getting those game nights together and kind of um, getting to meet people, you know, who you'd only sort of known, you know, from Twitter or via, you know, whatever the social internet space was. And so kind of getting to spend an hour, an hour and a half together virtually, even through Zoom um, and playing the game and and hanging out was really um, was really great and and really made it feel like a, a smaller community um, 
of people that you could get to know. And so it's good to see you. And, um, and I'm, yeah, excited to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, your game has been such an inspiration and brought so much joy to my friends and I, and also uh, listeners when they found out you were going to be on, we're very excited to learn more about the game and also you. So tell me your background. How did you get into film and how did this eventually lead to Cinephile Card Game? Um, yes. Okay. Let me think. So yeah, I've always liked movies. Um, I remember being very little and my dad who worked a lot, um, would kind of him bringing me to the movies after work, um, was one of our things. And so it was really exciting for me. I remember kind of riding in his car and it would be nighttime. We would go up to, you know, whatever the nearest theater was and watch whatever was there and get really excited about it. Um, and so I, one of my earliest memories, as I have recounted a few times, um, but is basically him taking me to see uh, the movie RoboCop uh, when I was oh, wow. five and a half years old. Uh, <laughs> as anyone who has seen that knows, this is a very violent movie, um, but it was a different time. It was 1987. And um, I remember seeing the giant cardboard standee in the lobby for RoboCop um, and him just pointing to it and being like, oh, my God, we are seeing that. You know, it's the him getting out of the cop car. It just looks incredible. Um, and we did. And, you know, he covered my eyes during some of the ultraviolet moments and the rest of it. I do just remember kind of the thrill of um, watching that and so many other movies like that. And so I've just kind of been, um, you know, as so many people, a lifelong movie nerd. Um, I worked at a theater in, in high school with all my friends. And another kind of activating moment was um, seeing Boogie Nights when I was 15, when it came out. And we had kind of gone in thinking, um, you know, we saw everything because we worked there and thinking, oh, this is a movie about porn. We're 15. This is going to be great. And yeah. just sort of like having our minds blown, just stumbling out onto the sidewalk two and a half hours later, just like completely changed. And mm -hmm. so I really became obsessed with Paul Thomas Anderson and following his career and um and and went from there yeah and um so i i went to school for um media arts and animation uh because i love to draw and um i kind of ended up working in advertising as an art director uh where i've spent um basically most of my career um and a few years ago um i basically tried to um fuse those two things together a little bit and i had this idea um, for a card game. And so that's kind of how that started. That's amazing. And I love you talking about uh, seeing RoboCop when you were super young, because I think one of my earliest movie memories was my dad putting on Die Hard for my brother and I, mainly my older brother, who was just three years older, though. So he was probably in like, fifth grade and I was in second grade. And so I had nightmares about Alan Rickman for years <laughs> until like I saw a sense and sensibility. And then it was like, Ooh, but, uh, but yeah, recontextualized. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What yeah. this actor could do. But um, yeah. And then working in a movie theater, I had the same job. I was, you know, a popcorn girl, concession girl. Uh, when I was 15, I uh, loved uh, exploring films my gateway or the film that really kind of blew my hair back was um, probably Scorsese's Goodfellas or The Godfather or Vertigo. 
Um, those were kind of big ones early for me. But yeah, very similar backgrounds. That's so cool about the art because one of the things that's so vibrant and memorable and instantly identifiable about your work is the fabulous art that is associated with the games and the books. So tell me about collaborating with the artists. Yeah. So the irony is, so I went to art school because I love to draw. And then as I've now kind of started my own business, the only thing that I don't do is draw. It's, it's that oh, I, no. <laughs> I write and I do the design and art direction and uh, work with uh, even more talented collaborators to draw. Um, so the, the game um, is a buddy of mine, uh, Steve Isaacs, who I worked with in advertising and just is incredibly talented at everything um uh including drawing and and kind of when i had the idea for the game um it basically came out of so you mentioned the um the b-side guys so dan and connor yes. so I, so so the origin behind that is um i met them through jordan raup uh the founder co-founder with dan of the film stage, the film stage um yeah. uh, because there used to be a, a movie trivia in williamsburg brooklyn at a place called videology that was basically a bar with a video store in the back and they would do this weekly movie trivia. And Jordan um, basically had reached out to me to see if I could sub in one week, basically, because someone wasn't going to be there. They were, you know, having trouble fielding a team. And I showed up and I had so much fun that I basically became a permanent member and, and went every week for about two years and so this um, this is where I met um, Dan and Connor and got to know Jordan better. Uh, David Ehrlich from IndieWire was on our team. The uh, oh, the blank so the blank great. check guys met yeah. uh, there apparently. Uh, Griffin and David, uh, and it basically was just this. It was the first time in my life I had been in a room with people who not only knew as much but knew more than I did about movies, and so it was just so incredibly hard that the fun trivia wasn't the stuff that you knew the fun the the most fun was the stuff that you were pulling out of your subconscious that you weren't even sure how you might know the answer but you had a feeling it was like a hazy memory of the VHS box or something that you that came to you through you know not something that everybody knows trivia wise but but you had a feeling about and so kind of getting the rush from from that was really the most fun about it and so so when our team, you know, eventually disbanded and kind of went our separate ways, uh, I really missed it. And I remember kind of looking around at other, you know, movie games and things that were out there. And, and you know, some of them were fun, but mostly what I found was that um, they were sort of aimed at a wide audience where it was, you know, I could play with my mom or I could play with my neighbor, but there wasn't really anything that seemed made for like the people in that room at Videology. And so yeah. I kind of, on a you know post-it note, literally sketched out an idea for what became Cinephile, which was just um, a deck of cards that would act as a prompt to play some of the movie games that I already played, you know, on road trips and days at the beach and whatever. So six degrees, you know, every time I would get in the car with my wife on a long drive, I would say, give me two actors. And then I would try yeah. and link them together. Uh, or sometimes with the group, you know, we'd play, I called it filmography. So you'd say an actor, Tom Cruise, and you'd go around naming Tom Cruise movies until someone was stumped, that person would be out. And I just thought, 
you know, you could play both of these games. You, you can play them without a deck of cards, but I thought if you had a really beautifully designed deck of cards, you could play those games and you could also play, you know, other games. You could play charades, you could play, you know, kind of a heads up style game. You could play anything. And so the idea of making um, making this deck as, as kind of a, a prompt to get people to play um, was part of it. And then the other part was basically trying to aim it at the at the people who were as interested in film as I was, which was basically, um, you know, if you're doing an Al Pacino card, instead of seeing him as Scarface or the Godfather for, you know, the thousandth time doing cruising or something, it was more of like a film nerd pick, but a little more under the radar. And so trying to mix in things like that, character actors with movie stars, so that, you know, someone who really is obsessed with movies the way that I am, the way that so many people are, would get this game and feel that this was made for them. You know what I mean? It, it, it isn't made to kind of water it down for, you know, everybody. It's like, it's great if everyone can play. And we tried to make different levels of games so that you won't just throw it across the room if you try and play with your, you know, mom or neighbor. <laughs> um, but the initial idea was really tailoring it for uh, people who were as obsessed with movies as as we were. That is so cool. I love the trivia story. I've told this story a million times on the podcast, but because I'm sure people will be tuning in specifically because they are interested and might not have heard it, I'll share it again. But I was a ringer on a trivia team when I was 16. Um, my friend, Paul, who was a local reporter, he was like four or five years older than me. And he and a bunch of people at their paper would go to this bar movie trivia night, like every Friday night. You couldn't win two Fridays in a row. That was the rule. Like the team couldn't win. And at first they just started to, now this was like the mid nineties. So, you know, not everybody had cell phones. They started to call me like outside the men's room. And it was, you know, like to try to get me to tell them answers for things and after enough calls on a friday night my dad was like what is going on it sounds like people are calling you from a bar you know and i'm like oh it's just paul well you should just go and so i went they didn't card women so i just would pose as whoever was like near their girlfriend and i was just a ringer and so i think everybody was like why does she know so much about annie hall or whatever weird <laughs> question was being asked like why does this young woman know so much so, um, yeah, so I got into trivia and same experience. It was just very cool to be around people who loved movies that much and took it seriously. And some of the other teams were like hyper competitive and you could tell they were pocketing like the Leonard Malton guide and all of that nonsense. But yeah, so I love that. I think what's so cool about it is exactly what you were saying. It's a nice balance of people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and more famous names with some of the character actors that really bring people together or uh, that are cinephiles and make us really excited to kind of blend them together. Some of our favorite nights have been going deep on like Rudger Hauer's filmography or uh, Bill Paxton or whoever leads to the next person. And I remember once, um, just like everybody was out pretty much except for a couple of people and they were going deep on like the dark backward and just really obscure picks. So I do love that about your game so much. Yeah. And I mean, even the games themselves is just, you know, like 
six degrees, it's it's the yeah. hardest game in the instructions, but not everyone can do that. I mean, even, no. even people who love movies can't necessarily do that. It's a certain type of brain math where, you know, I, I knew at the inception of this, like this, this won't be for everybody, but for the people who it is for, you know, hopefully they're going to really love it. And so far, that's kind of been the response. I mean, it's really been um, kind of an amazing um journey to get it out there in the world because um in in my career in advertising i mainly worked in digital so that meant you know doing stuff for social or the web or making videos and things but it was kind of um basically making things that don't really exist and so that the whole idea with cinephile was I wanted to make a physical object, you know, and so many people have kind of said to me, oh, well, this could be an app, you know, or at least they did, you know, a few years ago. Oh, I uh, bet. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, you should do this as, as an app. And I'm like, I completely believe you. And yes, it could be. And I have no interest in doing that because yeah. I've worked on developing apps and it is not fun. And what I want to do is make a beautiful object that sits on your shelf, you know, next to your criterion collection, you know, or whatever. Um, and is a thing that you can play. And so it was funny during the pandemic to kind of adapt it over Zoom to doing this virtual version of it, but still mm. starting from this place of this physical object. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of collaborating with the artist, um, do you guys have similar frames of reference of this movie or this scene? Or are there is there a lot of discussion on the, the look? Um, yeah. So I think I when I had first started out. So so anyway, so I so I had sketched this out on a post-it note and basically had started doing some research into uh, Kickstarter campaigns and yeah. how I might be able to self-fund and release this game. And I, because my experience was in digital, I didn't really even have that much print experience. So it kind of was marching forward, figuring I will figure this out. And this is going to be like my summer project. And I think I can get it out by the fall. And if we can get funded and, you know, I'm going to see how it goes. And so um, in doing everything else, I kind of figured, I don't think I can also do the illustrations. And, and, um, and so when I thought of my friend, Steve, who, who is an amazing, you know, illustrator, uh, he came on board and his style developed so quickly that the idea in my mind was a lot more kind of scrappy and indie. And then his drawings were so good. I think it, <laughs> it took kind of the visual element of the game to a whole nother level because he really could capture these likenesses. And um, I remember him doing, he had done like five or six versions of Winona Ryder. That was the first card um, in the game, all different levels of, do you want it really cartoony? Or he kept going a little more towards realism and it really came to life. And I remember him doing Nicholas Cage from Raising Arizona, a couple illustrations later, and just feeling like, oh man, we've really yeah. hit on something here. Um, and so basically within a couple months, we got together a Kickstarter campaign. Um, this was in May of 2018. So um, so literally five years ago last week was when I started working on Cinephile as a project because I, I have the date in my, I made a Google Slides deck and showed it to my wife, like worked oh. on it one day and showed, pitched her and it just walked through, you know, in 15 slides, here's the game, here's what it's called, here's what it's looked like, here's how you play it. And then here's how much money I think we need to make it. 
and launch a Kickstarter and what do you think? And at the end of the deck, she was kind of like, yeah, like you have to do this. And so within a couple months, yeah. So I think I had pitched it to her like without the deck before. And she's like, I don't know. We're like, you're working on this other project. You know, I had some other ideas that were going on. But once she's kind of saw it laid out in that organized fashion, she like believed, like she could see the full vision that I had. Um, And thankfully she was supportive. And so a couple months later, we launched the Kickstarter campaign. um, And I think we needed $8,000 to pay for like whatever the minimum print, you know, thing was. And we basically crossed that on our 30 day campaign on day five, which was incredible. That's amazing. Um, so the other thing that happened on the, literally the same day, the fifth day we had launched this campaign was I got an email from Penguin Random House um, and they had seen the Kickstarter and they were interested in partnering to release the game. And in all my like indie dreams of how I could make this, I'd never even considered like that it would go to a publisher or be released in bookstores or any of that. I just figured... We'll do a Kickstarter. I'll make a website. We'll put it on social media and like, we'll see what happens. And so long story short, after like many months of back and forth, like talking to them, um, we decided to do that. And part of the reason was uh, two things. It was basically um, they made beautiful things. Uh, It's a subsidiary called Clarkson Potter, and they specialized in card games and, and things like that. And they sent over a sample of what they do. And just the way that the packaging, the way all of that stuff comes together, I thought this is a version like that I can't make on my own. And that and going back to the I want to make a beautiful object that sits on your shelf, they could help me realize that. Um, And then the other thing was just going, this will get it to more people. They'll put it around the world. um, And that's something that I really can't do on my own. And so we ended up... um, signing a deal with them. And then so the summer project that I thought, you know, I'll spend a couple months and it'll be out by the fall, uh, got pushed back an entire year. So it didn't come out until August 2019. So about 18 months later. And so what I thought would be a couple months of work ended up being, uh, I've now been working on this uh, every day for five years, basically, you know, which is a good thing, but it was the the thing I had underestimated was the amount of work um, that it would take to do any of this stuff. But it's all been um, a great journey and, and seeing the way the game has reached the community and it's been received and brought other people together, like is is like the best thing about having done it is like had this crazy idea, thought, I can't believe no one has made this. I'm going to make this. And um, and then having it actually come to life has been amazing. Yeah, so much. When I was in LA last summer, it was just awesome to see like so many books and stuff by my friends, and then your products sitting there too. It was like wow. It was very cool to to know that how this started online, and then there it is in the Academy Museum, and this sets us on the path, or you on the path to the books. So talk to me about A.S. for Tour, your children's cinephile books. Was it hard to arrive on topics? What led you to this? Having kids, I would imagine. Yes. So that was it. So it was a very um, early 2018. I was between full-time jobs and had this burst of creative inspiration where I had a few different ideas. Um, my wife and I were kind of working on something that didn't end up happening uh, and then I had the idea for Cinephile. And then literally like a week after 
cinephile, like I'd made that deck. Um, I had another idea for little cinephile because we had <laughs> a, you know, one-year-old at that point. Um, and, and, and basically when, when we had um, our son, uh, we had gotten, you know, a lot of gifts from friends and things. Um, and some of those gifts uh, were like, there is a book called AB to Jay-Z, which is like an alphabet book of like, you know, hip hop. Uh, and then there's an alphabet book of sneakers and there's an alphabet book of HP Lovecraft. And we'd gotten all these like niche, you know, really fun, really clever, really cute books and things. And like, we're not necessarily even hugely into any of those things, but it was just kind of, it. it's something that stands out and is a little different. And so when I was looking into, well, what, you know, what film books are there for film nerds with young kids in that vein? And there really wasn't any. And so it seemed like the same thing as the game where I was kind of like, I can't believe no one has made this. I had the idea for A's for a tour of just an alphabet book of film directors from A to Z. And kind of like Cinephile, um, Steve Isaacs uh, illustrated, we had the idea of doing not just a portrait like on the cards, but a full mural kind of behind them of imagery from all of their movies and things. And, and um I'm someone who, when I'm reading a book, I really like it when it rhymes. And so like books that don't rhyme are like not as fun to read for me. And so <laughs> I kind of made that a thing where I was like, I'm going to not only, you know, put references to all of their movies in the images, but I'm going to write a kind of rhyming Dr. Seussian, you know, text that is basically either, you know, motifs or themes or references to things in their movies so that basically someone who is a parent who is reading this will have fun reading it, even if you're not getting all the references. But if you are, you're picking out literally there's, I think, over 200 movies referenced in this 26 you know page alphabet book um, so that it would be fun on two levels. Um, and so, yeah, so that was the first book. Um, and I think it came out in 29, no, 2020. So I think it was the year after the card game. Uh, we released uh, A is for our tour. That is so cool. I love that idea. And you brought up a really good point because reading books to small kids, it is helpful if they are just fun to the ear and fun to uh, read aloud. And I think that might also help reinforce the knowledge to have rhyming. So I think that was part of the reason that they're so original and just instantly uh, adorable, but also informative. And that leads us to your new ones, the My First series. So was it hard for you to like narrow it down to these specific topics? And how did you choose those? Right. So yeah, so with A's for Tour, the idea was that it would both function as like a genuine alphabet book for kids, but also like as a coffee table book for grownups. So it's kind yeah. of hardbound and, you know, beautifully designed and cinephile, um, very much carries over the look and feel of the game. Uh, but it would work on both levels. Um, and then so the next uh, idea was basically doing this My First Movie series. Um, and so the idea was, you know, unlike the AS for a tour book, this would be aimed at, you know, really small kids. And so it would be the board books with like the thick cardboard pages so that they can't tear or bend, you know, if like a newborn is holding it. Um <laughs> And that the art style would be uh, more children's book-like, more colorful, simpler, um, that kind of thing. Um, and so so I found uh, an illustrator uh, on Pinterest, actually, uh, Julie Olivia, an incredibly talented French illustrator, um, 
And I basically reached out online because I loved her work. She had done a series of um, portraits of characters in Twin Peaks um, and basically like these postcards. And they had a children's book feel to them, but also really captured the mood and atmosphere of the show in a way that seemed to perfectly be what I was looking for with this series. And so the idea behind it was um, each book would focus on a kind of subgenre of movies. Uh, in most cases, a not kid-friendly subgenre, but we would do it in a children's book style. And so hopefully it, you know, is a little bit funny and tongue-in-cheek, and yet it's done to such a degree like a genuine love and knowledge of these movies are coming through. And so the, the very first idea I had uh, was for a book called My First Giallo Horror of, you know, the Italian slasher 70s uh, movies, you know, by Argento and Mario Bava and people like that. Um, and it just, it basically kind of made me laugh. The contrast between these depraved, stylish, you know, garish, you know, at times movies and a children's book was just the widest contrast. And it seemed like a creative challenge to me. Um, and Julie, I had, th I think I had originally found her work. She had done some um, basically like color studies, like storyboard looking paintings of Deep Red from the movie. And I loved them. And so I knew that she was already kind of interested in that uh, subgenre. And so when I reached out, that was kind of part of the pitch. So I, I so the first two ideas were um, my first yellow horror and my first French new wave, which seemed like very different, very visually distinctive uh, from each other. And then I was trying to think of a third and my wife had kind of suggested film noir. And I was like, oh, of course, like, you know, this is perfect. Um, and they're all, um, I think the important thing is doing like a very specific subgenre. Like I think kind of like, um, like horror movies is too broad because they can look like anything. Yeah, like the tropes are too broad. Signature. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was really like, when the visuals and tropes are so specific um, and so distinctive, it felt that that would translate really well to doing this children's book style where you could pick it up and instantly kind of get the feeling of these movies, even if maybe you weren't familiar with them. And so the other part of the idea was going, well, I don't know how niche, you know, Jallo is. Uh, so the idea that you release them as a little box set where you could either get one, you know, book individually, or you could get all three together so that it could still be, if you have a friend who's having a kid, you would get them this box set, even if they're not Jallo fans or Noir fans, they're film fans. And so you kind of get such a range of of movies in there that hopefully it still appeals to enough people. Yeah. Absolutely. And you said this is something that you're still working on every day. So are there more books or is there anything ahead you want to give us a sneak preview of or you can talk about? And I understand if you can't, of course. Um. Yes, I... Uh, so the first series, uh, which came out in December, is my first movie, Volume 1. So that implies there must be a Volume 2. Yes. Uh, and so I am working on those now. Um, uh, the next three are going to be uh, my first Spaghetti Western, my Ooh. first Hollywood musical, uh, and my first uh, Yakuza movie. And so it's going to be really great. The color palettes are going to be very bright, very different from the first set. Um, and we are hoping to have those out by the end of this year. Um, Julie oh, is amazing. just about to start work on them. So I'm really excited. Um, yeah. And working on those now. That is amazing. And I love those selections. I'm a huge Western fan and I also love musicals. And um, what was the third one? I'm blanking. 
uh, it, uh, Yakuza movies. So like and Japanese Yakuza crime movies, movies, kind of like oh Seijin Suzuki, like that kind of thing. Exactly. Yes. Oh. Tokyo Drifter, that kind of like pop art, 1960s, you know, guys in cool Super suits and, and absolutely. So I lots of purples and neons and it's going to be really, really cool. Um, and, and very different from the first round. So I'm, I'm excited about this set. Yeah, I think last time I watched Brandon to Kill, I was like, you know what? This is like a box of Crayola crayons just come to life. And everybody remembers when they were a kid how excited you were when you got a brand fr- a fresh, brand new box of Crayola crayons. So, yeah, I can imagine uh, people who love art and film are going to be so excited for that. So that's wonderful. But when we were planning this episode, we thought it would be kind of fun to focus on a film that's kind of a mainstay or um, an emblematic picture for each of the genres that you selected in the my first uh, film or my first cinephile book series. And so the movies that we selected that Corey came up with are great. He chose The Killing, Stanley Kubrick's film from 1956, then Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is Jacques Demy, a French New Wave film, classic, came out in 1964, won the Palme d'Or, and then Deep Red, which is an Argento giallo horror film. That one was completely new to me. I had seen bad giallo like years ago. I tried something. It was not for me. And I just, I think in my mind thought, well, that must be what they're all like. And so I kind of stayed away from it. And then over the years, friends were trying to get me more into horror, which really isn't my genre too much. I would say sci-fi fantasy horror, I need to work on a little bit. And uh, I love Deep Red. I thought this was oh, great. a blast. So I'm glad that yeah, you I was very inspired curious. Yeah. me to watch this one. And the music, my goodness. I'm like instantly, I want the soundtrack. Yes, Goblin. Progressive rock, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, it's funny. I just um, had a chance to see it again uh, on the big screen at Museum of the Moving Image. Um, they were kind enough to allow me to do the introduction um, for it to kind of tie into my children's book. And I took um, Connor O'Donnell from uh, the film stage and the B-side. He had never seen it. And so I was also oh, curious because awesome. he's not a Jallo person and he also loved it. But I, I really had no idea going in like, is this going to be for him or not? And so I'm, I'm definitely curious to hear your thoughts on that. And also kind of not surprised to hear your initial, especially as a not horror person, um, maybe seeing some jellos that just didn't do it for you at all and and kind of thinking, well, maybe this isn't for me because I, yeah. I, I can, yeah, I, I definitely talk a little bit about my um, experience with it. But, um, but yeah, that totally makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, since... I mean, usually I go chronologically, but since we're focusing on Deep Red to start with, let's just get into it. So what is your background with Giallo? Yeah, um, well, I I am a big horror person. Uh, my dad is a huge horror person. So that was something that we have shared for many years. You know, when I was a kid, we would watch the Universal kind of monster movies together. Oh, and, Carl you know, from a, and Yeah, those. from a fairly young age. I remember like the sci-fi channel was doing a thing where they would air like a week of all the old Dracula movies and all the old mummy movies and Frankenstein. And we had like our six hour VHS tape and we're recording all of them and, you know, doing that so we could watch them again. Um, So, yeah, so we still like every year he'll come visit and we'll do a horror marathon for a few days um, of just watching everything we can, um, you know, new stuff, old stuff. 
But what's funny is the Jallo is not his thing. Is is I think he, you know, if he was a teenager or in his 20s, went to the drive-in and saw like an Italian movie, like he was just not into it, not into the <laughs> style, couldn't get past the dubbing, you know, these things. And I think I get that to a degree. So it was something I came to on my own. So the the first probably any Italian horror movie I had seen was Suspiria, uh, Dario Argento, uh, which I I think I had read about in Entertainment Weekly years ago. They had asked John Carpenter, what's the scariest movie you'd ever, you've ever seen? And his answer was Suspiria. And so I remember Ooh. trying to seek that out when I was in college at, you know, the local video store and seeing that and really having no idea of what to expect, no context for it, feeling... Um, kind of interested in the things that worked about it, like the music and the atmosphere, and then just feeling kind of confused by the dubbing and some of the other, you know, um, stylistic and, and, and the choices, kind of culturally yeah. different choices where it does take some getting used to. And then over the years, you know, many years later living in New York, I had the opportunity to see a lot of these movies on the big screen for the first time, kind of without any context. And so I saw deep red at an, uh, at the Nighthawk at a, at a brunch matinee with my wife and, and had no idea what to expect. And I saw, um, bird with the crystal plumage at the Metrograph with another friend of mine. And I think those were my first experiences with Jallo. So Suspiria, as many, you know, hardcore horror people will tell you, is not a Jallo movie. It's a Phantasmagoria movie. So Argento kind of throughout his career, you know, really progressed with his style. And so if you, I don't know if you've seen Bird with the Crystal Plumage. No. no. Okay. I would recommend if you like Deep Red, you should absolutely watch that next. Okay. Um, it is really stylish. It's a great mystery. And it almost plays like a latter day Hitchcock movie in that, the violence is mostly implied and it's not gory. Oh. It's not really on screen. It is almost more of a thriller and yet has like all the signature Jallo elements, the kind of mystery, the leather gloves, the knife killer, you know, um, some of the quirkier, you know, supporting characters um, and someone kind of wrapped up in this mystery. And so, um, so those are a lot of the elements of it. And, and I think the thing with Jallo, you know, as much as, you know, many of these kind of genres or eras um, of film is the kind of more you wade in, the more there's a cumulative enjoyment. Like once you kind of know um, the rules or the tropes or what to expect, the more that seeing four or five of these movies gives you a kind of even greater appreciation. Whereas if you kind of see one, you don't really have a frame of context or reference. Mm -hmm. You can just be sort of confused or turned off or not know, you know, what to think of it. But I think once you kind of, you know, are a little bit more um, invested in it, 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 it is fun to kind of go on the ride and, and be in that world. Yeah, I really loved the cast, especially David Hemmings. Recently, I just revisited Blow Up. I'd been talking about it with a friend and somebody else brought it up. And so I revisited that. And then watching this, I wasn't even aware that he was in it. So mm -hmm. it was really cool to be able to see these back to back because I think he is a tremendous, very magnetic screen presence. He does so much with his head tilts and his like bedroom eyes or he lowers his eyes. There's always like a cool voiced, uh, like smolder thing that he has going on that I think is very funny. You can kind of see him as a little bit of a, a macho or a chauvinist at times with uh, the Daria 
Nickelodeon character who I loved her as well. And I guess she's great. Yes, she this was the first film I read that. Yeah. So yes. apparently Argento um, uh, met her in casting sessions and then they were married uh, for about a decade and worked together many times uh, in his movies, including after they had separated. So this was yeah, this was their initial collaboration. Uh, what's funny is also, as you're saying with David Hemmings, is um, how the movie undercuts his masculinity and, yes. and basically like makes him the butt of the jokes. Is like how Frequently. sort of progressive it feels for a movie as old as it is, is is when he's riding in her car and the seat is broken. He's like yes. two feet shorter than her. You know, mm-hmm. she has all the power and all the confidence and he's kind of totally emasculated, you know, having to and ride shotgun. And he can't get out because of the lock, which yeah, I thought exactly. was a funny. That kind of played better. I, had, I did watch this film twice because I watched it originally. We rescheduled. So I just rewatched it um, like the other day and watching it the second time kind of helped me uh, see what they were doing with some of those jokes. And I, I loved it, but yeah, Dario and Daria, I mean, perfect. That's, yep. that's, that's great. And, you know, I think some of the campiness is maybe a little over the top, but I really, I loved it. I, I also, there's something about when kids are scary in movies mm-hmm. that make the movies like a hundred times more scary. So this is one of those films for sure. You have a kid where you're like, you know, is it a witch? What is going on? I thought that was really cool. Yeah. I was very into this one, very surprised. So I want to thank you for inspiring me. And I think the, the soundtrack is one of the best. It's been in my head for like months. Yes. Now. Yeah. It's, it's very groovy prog rock uh, from the band Goblin who would, who would go on to collaborate with Argento again on the Suspiria score, which people might know is very different kind of, have you seen the Argento Suspiria? You know, I think I started it and didn't get into it, but it was probably when I was too young for it. Okay. So I need to re- or watch it. Yeah, definitely worth rewatching. So the Suspiria in that phase of his career. So that so the Jallo is more the kind of, you know, the masked killer, the leather gloves, the knife, the mystery of it. And then the kind of phantasmagoria goes into a more, you know, witchy or supernatural direction and basically that's when he kind of gets into this red and blue you know color scheme the the really dramatic lighting the really operatic over the top um and so i think that was part of um you know in in the small print on the back of the book it says basically my first giallo horror it's like the wonderful world of italian horror from giallo to phantasmagoria because how could i not include suspiria and some of that red and blue you know i really just visually it's so striking um kind of we wanted to kind of build that in and so the book starts with kind of um the you know source novels the kind of lurid thrillers the jello comes from you know means yellow basically from these yellow paperbacks that were these crime novels that served as the inspiration for some uh of the jello movies um dario argento's first movie uh bird with the crystal plumage um was based on one called screaming mimi and so a lot of the source material was kind of coming out of this and that's how the genre was named um and he yeah it's it's interesting to watch the arc of his career, I, I think he's definitely the main touch point visually in the book. And Deep Red, you know, many consider to kind of be the height of Jallo as a genre, um, which, as I said, kind of starts um, almost as a kind of slightly edgier Hitchcock and then progresses into something, 
you know, much more explicitly violent and garish and, you know, seeing where it goes into the 80s when it's trying to keep up with slasher movies and definitely takes on um, different different tones. But I think Deep Red is that perfect kind of middle point when he basically had the resources to make a movie that looks as beautiful um, as Deep Red does, that it doesn't at all kind of feel like, uh, you know, I'm not sure which ones you may have come across, but they're definitely low budget and they definitely get a little grimy at times. And some of the content, you know, can definitely be off-putting, but Deep Red, there's such care in the craft of the filmmaking and some of the tracking shots and the colors and the red curtains. And it's really just so beautifully designed. Um, I think that helps for, you know, some of the more, uh, elaborate uh, set pieces and some of the the grislier deaths in the movie that that become part of this tapestry instead of just sort of a you know grimier low budget version. Yes. Well, speaking of beautifully photographed, we should probably work backwards and go with our next film, which I think is one of the most beautiful films ever made. Uh, Jacques Demy's The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. I'm a huge fan. Well, actually, both film noir and French New Wave. But um, film or French New Wave is a favorite. I had a self-designed film curriculum in my college, and I dedicated an entire class to the French New Wave. And this is a film, I think it was the first, one of the first foreign films I saw as a teen that completely just captured my imagination. And I knew I was, you know, a Francophile immediately after that and ready to see everything. So talk to me about Umbrellas of Cherbourg, shock to me and your experiences with this movie. Yeah, uh, that's funny because I you know, uh, did a similar thing in that when I was in college, I basically made a list of a hundred movies that I had heard about, you know, read about uh, on the AFI list or the EW list or the sight and sound list. And I organized it by director and by era. And so there was, you know, silent movies, and classics and seventies mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Um, and so when I would become interested in a director, I would basically add more to the list. And so it was, you know, if I loved Hitchcock or I loved Billy Wilder or I loved Fellini, I would dig deeper into their catalog and try and see more. Um, yeah. But so that's, you know, I'm, I'm sure a, a common refrain among, you know, film nerds um, like us. Uh, but yeah, you have Umbrella to go deeper Sherberg. into the filmographies. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Umbrellas of Sherberg is funny because I actually did not see it at that time. I didn't see it till many years later. Um, it was a movie um, that I was aware of. And I remember at the Sunshine, the landmark Sunshine Theater in, in downtown uh, Manhattan, they had a giant poster, like a vintage poster for it on the steps. So every time you were walking up to the theaters, you kind of pass by it. And I don't know why just Jacques Demy was not on my radar in the same way that Godard or Truffaut or the other, you know, filmmakers, you know, at the time. Yeah. Um, But I basically, uh, the first time I saw it was in the theater. It was uh, the IFC Center um, did these Friday matinees. And I literally snuck out of work for a couple hours on like a slow day and went to go see uh, Umbrellas of Sherberg and just loved it. And just completely, as you said, I mean one of the most beautiful movies ever made. Um, and I think I'm what not... a way to see it for the first time. My goodness. Incredible. And I mean, yeah. really no context other than the kind of the poster and knowing it was a musical and knowing it was, you know, from that era. Um, I, I didn't know. I, I don't think I'd seen a Jacques Demy movie before um, and was just totally blown away by it. I'm, I'm 
I would say that the hurdle in this for me and maybe for some people is I do have a little bit of trouble with musicals that are more operatic and that every line is sung in that way and in the Sweeney Todd way of things. Some argue this isn't even a musical because of that. Right. Because Mm -hmm. there is no dialogue if you've never seen the movie. Every single line is sung. Every thought, every, you know, every scene is, is purely sung. What I didn't know was that this was the first movie to do that. Did you know this? Yeah. Oh yeah. I I didn't know that. So, so I thought that was interesting and I cannot imagine the kind of creative challenge of how to convey um, the entire story through that when it had never been done. So pretty incredible. Yeah. He was inspired by Carmen and Carmen gets a shout out early into the film. And then later Demi would make a movie that was, I think, inspired by uh, Bizet work later on and blanking on the the title but yeah this is him at the height of his powers he had done lola this was his first film in color which is just tremendous insane when you think of it because he's matching costumes to the background the wallpaper everything is so carefully um organized and you know the pops of color that convey certain emotional beats at certain moments and how a dish is brought out at the right time or that kind of thing and you know it's also Catherine Deneuve was like a 20 year old discovery in this movie and Mm -hmm. she I mean they are lip singing this isn't uh them singing through the whole thing of course but she's able to focus on her performance of what it would be like to everyone remembers their first love or when you think you're going to live or die based on this person and it's about two lovers who are separated for two years during the Algerian war and she finds out she's pregnant she's uh, 16 or 17 and her mom they're poor they have an umbrella shop kind of pressures her into moving on and marrying a rich guy who loves her and wants to take care of her but you know part of you is she's been singing she's going to wait for this guy the entire time the tremendous song and then she doesn't wait and you're dying and it's you know so traumatic and so romantic and just a knockout yeah completely it's one of the movies that um kind of once you see it always sticks with you like the the visuals in the movie the wallpaper the colors the the feeling of seeing the movie is one um that really kind of lasts forever and so i i think that in in choosing kind of subject matter to to you know translate to these children's books you know, I returned a lot to things that it wasn't a movie that I had seen, you know, a hundred times, you know, in, yeah. in the case of the Jalo movies or the French New Wave movies. It was a movie that had left such a strong impression that even though I hadn't seen it in years, you could still kind of picture it visually, you know, in your mm-hmm. mind and the feeling of it. Um, and and yeah, I also love um I love movies that basically have uh have a portion set when the characters are playing younger and then kind of flashes forward in time to an older wizened maybe less you know hopefully romantic version of themselves and Mm -hmm. seeing the contrast between their kind of teenage self and their adult self and i i um definitely respond to that were you kind of close to their age in the 20 in your 20s when you saw it or were you older 
I think I may have been, oh, I think I may have been in my 30s when I saw it. Um, yeah. It was just one that it, it was like I had seen so many classics in college. It was sort of amazing that I still, you know, and, could turn this rock over and go, oh, my God. You know, I, I, I thought I had kind of seen everything at that tier of filmmaking. Um, so to still be able to discover something, you know, just felt like so exciting. This is one of those, I had a professor who said that they would always revisit Catcher in the Rye at different periods of their life because they would identify with other characters or different points of view because, you know, as you go on, you have different attitudes, you're shaped by your life. And this is one of those films, I think. I first saw it when I was teenager closer to um, the age that Deneuve is playing at the start of the movie. And then as I watched it and got older, I'm in my 40s now. And so watching it and thinking about, you know, what I've experienced and been through, and now I'm closer to the mom's age. And right, it, yep. it's interesting to uh, appreciate it and see different sides of it at different times of your life. I think this is a very special film for that. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's also one of the kind of perfectly bittersweet heartbreaking endings of all time where, know. you know, not to Christmas. Not to, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, I don't know where you stand on it, but it is, it, it, this was the, you know, key inspiration and favorite movie of Damien Chazelle on La La Land. I don't know if you're a fan or not. I know it's very divisive, but, uh, it was okay. My, okay. my stand on it. I, I didn't passionately love it, but I thought it was okay. But yeah, you could see, I mean, there are sequences in that film that just knock me out completely. You know, you can see the the influence that Cherbourg and Young Girls of Rochefort, which is another yes, film right. very similar. It also has Deneuve and her sister, Francois Dorliac, who's amazing uh, in it as well. So if you're listening and you haven't seen that film, do check out Young Girls of Rochefort. Maybe watch these before you watch La La Land. But if you have it, hey, that's a good gateway and it'll, you know, teach you to go back into filmography. Exactly what Corey was saying, which is why being a cinephile is so fun. And looking deeper into people's backgrounds, we have Stanley Kubrick in our next film. I think everyone thinks of him as, you know, the guy behind The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut and those films. And it's cool to see where he started. This was the first film he considered uh, to be like his first mature film. I think he was 27 when he made The Killing. And um, he rejected his previous film before that. And then there'd been Killer's Kiss. But this was kind of the movie that they took a bunch of loans out to, to get done. And it was a critical success. It wasn't a box office success, but it did sort of announce that there is somebody here with vision. It was his last film to be made completely in the United States. So it's, oh, wow. you know, really worth checking out if you're a Kubrick head. Yeah, absolutely. And this was one um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a Warner Brothers Kubrick box set that collected most of his career, but not The Killing. And so The Killing was a kind of- I remember of, that set, yes. Yeah, was like, you had to seek this out. You had to find the pre-Lolita, oh, he did this too, you know, yeah. and, and kind of separating it from, you know, Killer's Kiss and, and you know, what have you. But anyway- um, but the killing is a great one, and I do think it's it's the first of his movies that feels you know like it belongs on the same shelf with with the rest of his masterpieces, basically. Yes. 
Yeah, the ending. It's one of my favorite endings in film noir. And, you know, it's Kubrick is famous for his endings, you know, being very sardonic. And this is just a perfect ending. It's also Jim Thompson's dialogue collaborating with Kubrick based on some, the book. some real hard boiled shit in this movie. Yes. I think so many oh great lines. Yeah. I know. And so many of them are completely uttered by uh, the female character who is one of the coldest women yes. in film noir, uh, just brilliantly played by Marie Windsor. This also, of course, has Sterling Hayden. I love Sterling Hayden. He it kind of feels like a cousin or a brother to his role and the same uh, type of film. It's a heist movie as the Asphalt Jungle, the John Houston picture. Yep. So I like that. Also, um, I know they clashed like insanely when they made this movie, Lucian Ballard. But you are dealing with the guy that shot Laura, which is my favorite film noir. So, I mean, there's a lot of magic in this movie. Yes. Um, I, I kind of put it on again this morning just to refresh myself a little bit. And just the thing that you notice right away is so this is definitely in the later era of film noir, which I feel like really the peak was in the 40s. And this is what, 56, right? So towards yeah. the tail end of, of kind of that, you know, initial wave of uh, film noir. But it's really interesting um, to see it both as very much belonging to the genre and the tropes and, you know, all of the things like, you know, the basically um, kind of evil being punished and getting the, you know, the kind of getting what's to you of it, but also seeing Kubrick imposing his meticulous, exacting, incredible visual style and just the, the blocking and the framing in this movie just jumps out of the screen. Um, a couple of years ago yeah. at a museum here in LA, there was an exhibit. Uh, it may be traveling around um, basically of Kubrick's like photography that he had done his yes. like black and white photography, mm -hmm. which was amazing. And, you know, walking around the exhibit and seeing, you know, him photographing boxers and, you know, basically street scenes in the city and things like that. And each one of them looks like this could be a frame from one of his movies. Yes. It's like how amazing this black and white photography is. And then kind of watching the killing again, you can really see that carrying over into the way this looks. And I, I feel like a lot of, you know, when I think about movies of the 40s and kind of, you know, Orson Welles maybe being one of the uh, outliers to this, you think of the framing being a little bit more like, you know, a stage where you're watching through a certain, um, a certain vantage point and the ways that Kubrick is placing his camera and putting it in the scene to frame the actors uh, in their environment just is really something to watch, you know, particularly compared to some 40s noirs and things. Not that they're not all visually distinctive in their own ways, but seeing Kubrick kind of try his hand at this, I think is really, you know, incredible. Yes. Yeah. He gets very close to the actor's faces, which was a, an issue with Ballard. He kept wanting to pull it back. And he said, you do it again, you're fired, essentially. <laughs> I love the scene of them planning. It's one of the most famous scenes in the movie around the table. It was only lit by uh, a single light bulb over their heads. You know, it kind of gives off that sort of Rafifi feel, which is kind of you know, apropos because Rafifi, which he could not have seen at the time, it was released or made the same year as this was being done. Oh, interesting. It was 
made in 24 days uh, shoestring budget. I read, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the LA Times, but press at the time was joking that the budget on this movie wouldn't even pay for the lingerie in an Ava Gardner picture. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's just, he said, you can make great films cheaply. You know, they shouldn't be... Um, incompatible you should be able to do it he also loved and then the he idea. never did it again he never <laughs> he did it again and then, he was then like, it got, just kidding got bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger exactly but i think once but he did prove his point and i will say it's funny the scene around the table you point out that's the actually the frame in our children's book uh under the one last job oh, is, the, is the text on the page and it's that exact iconic scene of the them kind of being lit by the overhead light um and it really Julie really captured it. It's great. That's wonderful. Yeah, such a good film overall. Well, are there any other movies? I mean, these genres are so massive and you need to really delve into, but are there any other favorites you want to just give a shout out to before we wrap this one up? Sure. Yeah. Let's, uh, if you were seeing these for the first time and wanting to dig deeper, um, I would say uh, a, a film noir that does not get the love that I think it deserves is one called murder. My sweet. I don't know if you've ever oh, seen that. Yes. Dick Powell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So based yeah. on uh farewell, my lovely. Um, and it's a really stylish, really visually interesting in a way that also felt unique at the time. Subjective. Um, Philip, Philip Marlowe movie. Yeah. It has an amazing dream sequence kind of in the middle of the movie. It's like a drug hallucination thing that yes. has these like, panel the frames that look like they could have been in like a Chuck Jones cartoon or something that's just so surreal, so inventive um, and, and really worth checking out some great, some great dialogue in that too. Um, for French new wave, um, I would say um, Perot Le Fou or a woman is a woman. Love that are, film. Are and love, those are probably my two favorite Godard movies. Okay. So, so those, yeah, those are like when Godard went color also, you're just yes. like, holy shit. Like what he you're had doing that inside. here. Come on. Yeah. The eye. And, and those I think are the big inspirations uh, behind the, our French new wave book in the reds and the blues and just the controlled color palette and the way those movies look visually. And I think, um, I think if you are just kind of aware of French New Wave, but maybe haven't seen too many, it can seem a little, you know, arty or difficult or whatever. But the thing about watching some of those earlier Godard movies is I just feel like they're really playful and fun. And even if you're kind of not getting all the references or what's going yeah. on politically or culturally at the time, you can sort of let them wash over you and still just really love it as like a road trip movie or, you know, a movie about, you know, two lovers and just kind of taken the, the atmosphere and France at the time and the color palette and really just enjoy that. Um, and then for Jallo, I would say Bird with the Crystal Plumage. If you like Deep Red um, and want something else by Argento, I think it's interesting to start at the beginning and um, and check that one out. Wonderful. Well, Corey, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It was a real pleasure. And I'm just so glad that you inspired me to check out Deep Red as well. And this was really a treat. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jen. This was great. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. 
Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.